All right, so we will continue on on our lesson uh, talking about a more excellent way. Uh, and the point we tried to make this morning is that it's more excellent to walk by faith uh, and not by sight, right? Because by faith, uh, we can look ahead to things that we have not yet seen, right? And look to them for encouragement, right? Specifically, like when Paul mentions this phrase, we walk by faith, not by sight, it's in reference to awaiting our uh, glorified body, right? And how he reckoned that that uh, glory that would be revealed in us is not even worthy to be compared with the sufferings that he faced on earth. And so we need to have that mindset as well, right? Looking to spiritual things, to uh, our glorified body that we will one day have when Christ appears uh, and not be held down by uh, things we go through here in our fleshly body. And then also how we are to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh, and how you can walk after the Spirit um, by picking up the Word of God, reading it and believing it, and allowing it to work in you, right? You don't have to wait for a feeling or an experience to walk after the Spirit, right? It's not something that fills you with emotion, right? It's something that you can do simply by reading the Word of God and believing it, right? And then walking after that. And so, again, those are more excellent than what you often hear people saying and teaching regarding these subjects. And then this third point we want to make is that the spiritual is greater than the physical, right? The spirit is greater than the flesh. Um, as I said, trying to connect this to our last two lessons, talking about baptism and communion, uh, you have a spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 Says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. All right, so for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Not some, not a few, but every believer is baptized into the body of Christ upon salvation by the Spirit. Colossians 2.12 Says buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who have raised him from the dead. Right. So if you are buried with Christ, buried with him in baptism, uh, through the faith of the operation of God, you are also raised with him from the dead. So again, that hasn't yet happened, but it is something that you have being buried in Christ. Right. By faith, you will one day uh, rise with Christ. Right. And that's something that you already possess. Right, um, But this buried with him in baptism is a reference to you being placed into Christ and identified with his death. Right? And this is what Romans 6 teaches, that you were placed into Christ and buried with him in his death. You now identify with Christ's death. Um, in Romans 6, verse 3, Paul says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, so that's the baptism of the Spirit into this body, this one body of Christ, that you were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he says, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So because you are now identified with Christ in his death, your old man has been crucified with Christ. 
And that's what allows you to have uh, this new life, right? This resurrected life. And so you have this new life in Christ because your old man has been killed with Christ. That's what happened took place when you were baptized into Christ. And in Ephesians 4, 5, Paul says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so again, this baptism for us today is not being dunked in water. It's not water baptism. It is this spiritual baptism of you being baptized into Christ, into his body, and now being identified with him, which is a far greater thing than being baptized in water, right? Um, would you rather be dunked in water or be identified with Christ and placed in his body? I would take the latter, right? Being identified with Christ and placed into his body, having my old man crucified with Christ so that I can have new life, right? A resurrected life, uh, a promise of a glorified body. That is far greater than being dunked in water. Um, your baptism today identifies you with Christ. It places you into Christ and into his death. If you're still there in Romans 6, um, Romans 6, 3 through 11, we'll read the whole uh, context here. It says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So you see the contrast there. You have been planted in the likeness of his death, so likewise you will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, you can read about Christ's resurrection and how that he resurrected, had a heavenly glorified body, and ascended into the Father. And so you will have that likeness. You will get a heavenly body, and you will go into heavenly places, right? Uh, he says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So he doesn't say, knowing this, that our old man will be crucified with him. Right? It's past tense. Right? Christ has already been crucified, and you are now identified with Christ. Therefore, your old man is also crucified with him. Um, that way, you no longer have to be servant to sin. Right? You no longer have to be servant to your flesh, to your sinful body. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is your spiritual baptism. It affects how you live, right? Because you are to reckon... My baptism is into Christ's death. I'm identified with him now. I'm placed in his body. My old man is dead. Right? You reckon that to be true every day. Right? You've heard the phrase, I die daily. Um, that's taken out of context, but this is what people say. I have to die to my flesh daily. In a sense, that's true, but you have to have that understanding of what is actually true, which is that your old man has already been crucified. And you need to simply say, that's who I am. Right? That's already happened. I need to reckon it to be true today and not walk according to my flesh that has already been crucified with Christ, right? Instead, I need to walk into who I am in Christ in my new life, right? And live unto God in righteousness. Uh, that's what uh, Romans 6, 11 says, right? Uh, Reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's not through water baptism that you're alive unto God. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord, and you are placed into his body, right? So again, this is your spiritual baptism. 
And so thinking about the connection I was trying to make here, if we walk by faith, not by sight, you can't see this baptism. Okay, you can't feel this baptism. But it is far greater than water baptism that you can feel, that you can see. Or you can witness someone get water baptized. You see it. You're walking by sight, if that's what you're basing your salvation or your standing on Christ in. Or if you're standing with God. <clears throat> yeah, or your witness. Um, so the question I have for water baptism is you can see and feel water baptism, um, but what does it do for you? Because I just explained what your baptism into Christ does for you. It gives you an understanding that my old man is dead with Christ and I need to walk after the new man, right? After who I am with Christ. What does water baptism do for you? Does it puff up your flesh, right? And say, I've been water baptized, right? I'm now a member of the church. All right, what does it do for you is the question. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So apparently water baptism can make the cross of Christ of none effect. Right? Because people are going to see it, and they're going to trust in that. Right? Because people are more, they do tend more to go on what they see. Right? They tend to walk more by sight and not by faith. Right? We are to walk by faith, reading the scripture, and believing what it says. It says, I am placed into Christ, baptized into his death. That's what I need to identify with. My water baptism profits nothing, right? Um, you have a spiritual circumcision. So circumcision isn't as big of a deal today. Um, but if you're around Jews, it probably is, right? Because they were given that commandment. Uh, back in Colossians 2.11, where Paul talked about being buried with Christ in baptism, he also talks about a spiritual circumcision that we have. Uh, in Colossians 2.11, it says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Right, so regular circumcision is done by hands, um, cutting, right? But this spiritual circumcision is done by Christ without hands, right? And it's, it's like a metaphor, right? You're putting off your flesh, um, which is what circumcision is. It's cutting off uh, part of your flesh, uh, but the spiritual circumcision is also in connection with your spiritual baptism, right? Your old man has been crucified, right? Your flesh has been killed. It's been cut off, right? Uh, that's the uh, connection here. That's what Paul says, the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this is your spiritual circumcision. It's what we just read in Romans 6. You have to reckon yourself to be dead. You have to reckon your flesh to have been cut off, right, by Christ. In Galatians 2, 19 through 21, is another verse that you can connect to your spiritual circumcision. For Paul says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Well, physical circumcision was a commandment of the law, right? Um, Paul says righteousness doesn't come by that, right? It's by being crucified with Christ, right? Um, so that crucifixion with Christ is cutting off of your flesh, which is your spiritual uh, circumcision. So again, you can't see or feel this circumcision. 
by your spiritual circumcision, you have to believe it. You can see and feel physical circumcision, right? But what does it do for you today? Right? Under the Old Testament, you had to do it if you wanted to be in the covenant. But today, we're not under the law, right? We're not under a covenant. Uh, so the question would be, what does it do for you spiritually? Right? In Galatians 5.2, Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Again, it does nothing for you spiritually, right? Christ is not going to profit you if you're trying to keep the law, is what Paul's point here is. If you're being circumcised because you think you have to in order to be right with God, um, Paul says Christ doesn't profit you anything, right? Because if you're doing something in your flesh to be right with God, then what was the point of Christ's death, right? Um, so again, one of these is walking by sight and one is walking by faith, right? And one is more excellent than the other. The one that you walk by faith is more excellent. Um, the third point is you have a spiritual communion. And again, these understanding of your spiritual baptism, when you have that understanding, it can guard you against Baptist teachers who say you have to be baptized in water to join a church or to be right with God. Or church of God preachers who say you have to be baptized to be saved. Right? It can guard you against that because you say, well, my spiritual baptism is what identifies me with Christ, not my water baptism. Right. Uh, your spiritual circumcision, understanding this, and that physical circumcision does nothing to you, can guard you against Judaism. Right? It would tell you you have to be circumcised if you want to be right with God or be saved. Right? Um, the third one is your communion, which we read about in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, which also talks about your baptism. It says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a communion, a communion of us all being one in Christ, right? Members one of another. Colossians 3, 8 through 11, it's very similar. Where it says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, that's your spiritual circumcision, your spiritual baptism, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, we are all members one of another, because we have been baptized into the same body, right? That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit have we all been baptized into one body. That makes us all members one of another. All have been baptized into Christ and into his death. Uh, Romans 12, 5. It says, So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So we are many members, but yet we are one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, 4 through 5, where it talked about one baptism. It says in the verse before, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So again, you see this communion that we have being members of the body of Christ. It's one body, it's one spirit, it's one baptism, it's one Lord, 
It's this communion that we have in Christ. You go to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. Your communion today is with Christ being made one with the other members of Christ, all being partakers of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Right? So the communion we have is in the blood of Christ. The communion we have is in the body of Christ. Right? It's what he did for us on the cross. For we being many are one bread and one body. Right? The bread is a metaphor. We are one bread, we are one loaf, we are one body, and we are all partakers of that one bread, being Christ, right? being that one bread. He is the bread of life, right? and we are all partakers of that. And so this is our common union. right? You see that in the word communion. It's a common union, something we have in common that unites us, right? which is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, right? and all being made members of this one body. And so uh, you can't see or feel this communion. Again, something that happens to you when you're baptized into the body. Uh, you have to believe it, right? You have to believe that we are all members one of another. Um, you can see, feel, and taste the ritual known as communion, where you drink the grape juice and eat the bread. Uh, but what does it do would be the question, right? What does drinking grape juice and eating bread do for you? Right, some people say you have to do it to be safe. Uh, that's what the Catholics teach, right? Um, Protestants will teach you have to do it to be right with God, right? Um, but does it give you a communion with Christ in his body? 1 Corinthians 8.8 8 says, meat does not commend us to God. Right? And the word meat doesn't mean like actual meat as we think about it today. That's food, right? Food does not commend you to God. He says, for whether we eat or not, we are not the better, Right? If we eat not, we're not the worse. So Paul's saying, right, meat, what you eat or don't eat, does not make you right with God. It doesn't commend you uh, to God. So again, this is a far greater communion, that you are all one, that we are all one, right, one of another in Christ, and members of his body, is a far greater communion than what is known as communion today, drinking some great juice and eating a cracker, right? So one you can see and feel and taste, which is in the flesh, walking by sight, the other is by faith, right? And it's after the spirit, not after the flesh. Uh, another point to make is you have been given all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3, and 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 18, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. If you look at Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, it says, He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Uh, look at Ephesians 3.8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all these saints, is this grace given, 
that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So here you have about what five verses that talk about the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of Christ that you have in Christ Jesus, and how he has blessed you with all spiritual blessings. Uh, the point here that you have to remember is that they're spiritual blessings. Right? It's not things that you can see and feel today. 1 Corinthians 6.11, some of these spiritual blessings we will cover. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, uh, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Right? These are spiritual blessings that you have. You're washed, sanctified, justified. There's three of them right there that are spiritual blessings that you have. Uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30 is a popular passage, but it talks about these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Uh, verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So you here are given the spiritual blessings of predestination, being called, justified, and glorified. Right? These are spiritual blessings that you have. And then back to Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 8, so where he says you have been he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and so what you have here is you have been predestinated into the adoption of children. Um, you have been made accepted in the beloved. You have been given redemption. You have been given forgiveness. Uh, and he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Right, so these are spiritual things, spiritual blessings that you have, right, that we talk about. You've been given grace, right, justification, righteousness, forgiveness, right, you've been sanctified, You've been washed. You've been glorified. Right? That's talking about your glorified body that you will receive one day. These are all things that you possess in Christ according to his riches right? that he has in heavenly places. And then there in Ephesians 2, 7, it says, In the ages to come, he might show uh, the exceeding riches of his grace. So it seems like we're going to experience more riches when we get to our heavenly position right? in the ages to come. Uh, so again, these are things that you possess in Christ that he has given us, right, freely. Uh, you can't see or feel these blessings, um, but you can see, feel, and use physical riches, right? So riches here on earth, you can see those, you can feel those, you can use those today, right, to buy uh, earthly things. But what is the end of the physical riches would be the question. Uh, in Revelation 18, we won't read the whole passage for sake of time. But it's talking about the city Babylon there and the destruction of it. And in verse 17, it says, For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors, and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning 
saying, what city is like unto this great city? All right, so this Babylon was a city full of merchants and people with riches, right? Lots of earthly goods. And the judgment of it, it says in one hour, all these riches came to naught, right? About this judgment, in one hour, right? Think about everything someone works for in their whole life to build up riches is destroyed in one hour. Right, so what is the end of your physical riches would be the question. Um, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So he says, don't let them... Uh, trust in uncertain riches, which would be their earthly goods, right? But rather, uh, in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So their trust should be in the living God who has given us all things freely, right, to enjoy. Uh, so again, he has that encouragement to not trust in uncertain riches, being earthly riches that can be destroyed. Your spiritual riches, your spiritual blessings cannot be destroyed, right? And they're things that you need for eternal life. Right? Do you value earthly riches or your life more? Because if you ask someone, I can shoot you, which, I mean, kind of, if you're dead, right, you can't experience their earthly riches, right? But they say, I can shoot you. Um, I don't think how to put this to a nice contrast. You can have your life or you can have your riches, basically, right? Um, which one would they choose? They'd probably choose their life, right? Take my riches, just don't kill me, right? would be their, uh, what they would choose there, right? Um, so again, thinking spiritually, you have eternal life, right? Because of these spiritual blessings that Christ has given you, it's far greater than any earthly riches that you could have here on earth. So again, uh, the spiritual is greater than the physical is the point, right? Your spiritual baptism, your spiritual communion, your spiritual circumcision, your spiritual blessings are all greater and the alternative, physical baptisms, physical circumcision, physical uh, communion, physical blessings, right? Uh, so I wanted to make that connection from uh, what we talked about the last two weeks concerning baptism and communion. It's not just that we say, oh yeah, we don't water baptize and we don't practice communion. Those things are bad. Well, it's, no, there's a spiritual aspect to those things that we understand now that's far greater than those. That's why we don't do them. It's not because... Um, we just want to buck religion, right? It's that, what does that do, right? It doesn't do anything. We have the spiritual blessings in Christ that's far greater. So we see there's no need for that now, right? Because we have all things in Christ Jesus. We are complete in him. There's nothing we have to do in our flesh to be right with God, right? Because he's already given it to us, so we trust in him, right? Simply, we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, and so getting to the context of 1 Corinthians 12, 31, which was the verse on uh, the text verse on the outline, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that says, Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So we're trying to talk about this more excellent way. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, we're going to uh, talk about another thing that is controversial in the church, not just baptism and communion, but spiritual gifts. Right? Paul says there is a more excellent way than having the spiritual gifts. Okay? 
Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to turn there, we'll be there for a little while. Uh, the context of this verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul is teaching in this chapter that there are many members with different spiritual gifts in the body, uh, and that all members and all gifts are important. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4, he says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. All right, so there are different gifts given. In verse 12 through 14, he says, For as the body is one and have many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And then in verses 24 through 25, he says, For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So what you have here is Paul is saying, right, every member is important, right? We are all members one of another, even if we have different gifts. And if one seems not be as important as the other, they're all important, right? Um, you think about your heart, your liver, these are things you can't see. Right, that are part of your body, but they're critical for your survival, right? But you can't see them, right? They're not in the limelight, right? You look at people's face, right, to see if they're beautiful or handsome or whatever, right? You look at that outward appearance. But it's what's on the inside that keeps you alive, right? And so it's the things that you can't see, right, that are sometimes the most important. So that's what Paul is uh, saying here, that right? the, uh, he tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Right, the things you can't see has more honor. Right. Um, so sometimes this what he's saying here is true for those with spiritual gifts that maybe don't seem to be as important. Right, the person speaking in tongues is in the open talking. Right, but the person with the gift of healing is probably going to heal the person that spoke in tongues if he gets sick. Right. Um, so you have him uh, trying to teach that every member is important. Uh, it's also important here to remember that the Corinthians had division issues. Uh, so all throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul is correcting them because they had divisions among themselves. In the very first chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, he says, For I have been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ, is Christ divided. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Right. So you have these divisions, these different camps, where some were saying they were Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, he mentions this again. He says, uh, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are ye not yet carnal? Right, so you see here, there are divisions among you. Again, you have these different camps. Some are of Paul, some say they're of Apollos. Um, so you had divisions in Corinth. You look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8, or chapters 8 through 10, where he talks about the meats. Right, you had contentions and divisions among the Gentiles and the Jews. Right, because the Gentiles had no problem eating meats, and the Jews wouldn't uh, eat the meats. Right, so you had these contentions and divisions over whether or not they could eat meats offered unto idols. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you have these divisions over them coming together to eat and how they wouldn't carry them for another, right? And we talked about there could have been the division of 
poor and rich here, right? Uh, to where they had respect unto the rich. And when the poor would come, well, they had already eaten, and there was none left because you see people leaving hungry, right? Uh, because they probably didn't have food to eat at home. And so Paul encourages them to tarry uh, one for another when they come together to eat. And if you're hungry, eat at your house, right? Uh, so that everybody can get some. And again, that has to do with our communion in Christ and uh, how we can show that by caring one for another. Uh, but they were likely divisions, too, over the spiritual gifts, which is what I think uh, would be the reason Paul is saying, right, some of you who may not have a spiritual gift that seems important, you have to remember that in the body, every member is important, right? There are probably divisions among whose gift was better, right? Well, my gift of tongues is better than your gift of helps, right? Or I'm sure there was a division, uh, there div those divisions there. Uh, so that's why I think Paul is addressing this issue. Uh, but Paul reminds them that, again, we are one body, right? In verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular, right? You are members one of another. And he tells them that the gifts had a purpose. Uh, so in verse 4, he says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, right? It's the same Spirit giving these gifts. Uh, it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with them. So the Spirit gave different gifts to profit, right? They were to come together, one of another, to give a profit in the body, right? Each gift had a purpose. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul is still dealing with this issue. Uh, he says, Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. All right, so he says, you're zealous of the spiritual gifts, but you need to make sure you're seeking to edify the church with it. Because that was the purpose of it. It was to profit one another, right? It was the purpose of these spiritual gifts. Um, so in verse 31, that's the context here of what Paul's dealing with. He tells them, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And so he says there is a more excellent way than having these spiritual gifts. And that more excellent way is charity. Uh, because this is where First uh, Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as many call it, is placed in your Bible. It's in this context of Paul dealing with spiritual gifts. And so he says in verse 31, uh, Covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And then he continues on, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So he says you have the gift of tongues, right, and of angels even, but if you don't have charity, it's just a bunch of noise. It doesn't profit. It's just a bunch of noise if you don't have charity. He says, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Right? So you think about someone with all the wisdom and knowledge they can have, that would be an important person. Right? So Paul says, If I don't have charity, I am nothing with this gift. Uh, he says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. There's no, no profit to it without charity. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Right? This is charity. Uh, the point being, you can have a spiritual gift and not be doing these things. Right? One of these things is rejoice not in iniquity. 
you can speak with tongues and still rejoice in iniquity, right? Which is not a profit to the church, right? So you see here how charity, having it, is more excellent than just having a spiritual gift, right? Um, the more excellent way is also knowledge and understanding with charity. So again, even knowledge and understanding uh, isn't profitable without charity. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul mentions this. He says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifies. Alright, so knowledge with charity produces edification. Knowledge without charity produces pride. Right? And so knowledge and understanding with charity is the more excellent way than simply having a spiritual gift. Uh, there in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 and 9, he says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And this knowledge was a spiritual gift of knowledge, right? Where the Spirit would give them knowledge of a mystery, right? Or of a doctrine uh, that they didn't right, have before. They couldn't read about it. It was something new being revealed. Um, he said that would vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So the point here is that these spiritual gifts that they have are just a part of something, right? And when the full thing has come, then this part is done away with. It's no longer needed, right? Um, verse 11, uh, when you grow up, you no longer need a parent, right? Because you're mature enough to provide for yourself. Uh, that's what he says here. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Right? When you become a grown-up, you no longer act like a child. Right? You no longer need a parent to care for you right? because you are now uh, grown up. Uh, when you understand in part, you can provide some value. But when you know fully, you can be more effective and you no longer need someone to teach you, right? Um, this thing about Excel, the word uh, office Excel, uh, there's a lot of things you can do with it. And I've used a class to learn some stuff on it. It's a free class, but I haven't finished it. So I can do some things on Excel. I can do formulas and create tables, but I've not yet learned how to do pivot tables and the lookups and all these other things you can do in Excel, right? So I can provide some value and until I learn the whole thing, I'm not going to be fully effective in using Excel, right? Uh, so the same thing here. These spiritual gifts provided value, but they weren't the full thing, right, that was needed. Uh, and we'll get to what that full thing is here in a minute. Um, but Paul teaches throughout all his epistles, above all, put on charity. Uh, it's not just here in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, at the end of chapter in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says, let all your things be done with charity. All right, so do all things with charity. In Colossians 3.14, he gives a list starting verse 12 of things that they should be doing. He says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So charity is the bond of 
perfectness, right? All those things he just listed, charity covers, right? Um, so he says, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4, um, I don't think that's the right verse. Second Thessalonians 3 through 4. It says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is me, because that your faith grew up exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulations that you endure. So he's giving thanks to God and praising them because of their charity and their patience that they had, right? Uh, and it's interesting when you compare the Thessalonians to the Corinthians, Paul is often given thanks and praise to the Thessalonians because they believed in the word of God and it effectually worked in them, right? They had charity one to another, right? So you see Paul uh, um, thanking them and praising them for their behavior, right? Whereas the Corinthians is always reproof, right? You need to put on charity, right? Um, so it's interesting to make that comparison there. But he says, above all these, put on charity. Uh, and so, going back to talking about the spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are pointless if they do not edify or profit others. Um, we won't read all of 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 20. Uh, you can go back and read that, but Paul is, in that chapter, talking about how speaking in tongues is pointless if there's no one there to interpret it, Right? Um, it's pointless if it's not actually edifying someone else. If you look at verse 18, he says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit malice be children, but not understanding be men. I could get up here and speak in tongues. And we would all still be children in understanding because no one would understand what I'm saying. Right? He says, I would rather speak just five words that you can understand so that he can actually teach you. Right? Jesus Christ died for you. Five words. Right? That teaches you something. Como esta usted? Or whatever. Right? Spanish. If you don't understand it, it's not teaching you anything. Right? Um, so that's the point he's trying to make here. Spiritual gifts are pointless if they don't provide a profit or edify um, spiritual gifts were given for the purpose of edifying and building the church until it came into the full knowledge of the doctrine. And that word, until, is important uh, in the debate of whether or not spiritual gifts are given today. There in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Alright, so these gifts are a part, but when that which is perfect is come, they're done away with. Right? It clearly says, tongues they shall cease, knowledge it shall vanish away, prophecies shall fail. Uh, if you turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which is where Paul talks about spiritual gifts here, uh, it says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers 
for the purpose of perfecting the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. So consistent here with Corinthians that there is a purpose for the gifts given, right? And it's to build up the church, to edify it, right? If it's not doing that, then the spiritual gifts are pointless. But notice verse 13, they were given for this purpose till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And so they were given till we come into unity of the knowledge of the Son of Man, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro. And so you can see a connection between 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about, when I was a child, I spake as a child. Right? There's a lack of understanding when you're a child, but when you become a grown man, a mature man, right, you have the knowledge. Right? You're no longer tossed to and fro because you're standing secure in something. Um, we have the Word of God today. Right? Paul says in Colossians uh, 1.25 that he was given the mystery to fulfill the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, Paul's last epistle, he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Um, he doesn't say that you can be partly furnished, and with your spiritual gifts, then you're fully furnished. All right, it's the scripture, the word of God, that we now have complete, that can make us no longer children tossed to and fro. It can make us thoroughly furnished unto all good works, that we no longer need a supernatural gift to know how to act and know what doctrine is, right? Again, that was the purpose of the spiritual gifts, so that they could uh, grow up into the body of Christ how they should, right? But now that that has been completely revealed, right, the spiritual gifts are no longer needed, right? Uh, because that's what Paul's talking about, until we come into an understanding and the knowledge of who we are in Christ, right? That we no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You have the word of God now to protect you from that. And so charity is more excellent than spiritual gifts because without it, the spiritual gifts do not profit. Uh, complete knowledge with understanding is more excellent than spiritual gifts because I can freely know and use my knowledge to minister and to live by and not be dependent upon a supernatural gift. So again, if I had the word of God to teach me doctrine and what I should know uh, to edify others, I can go about my day doing that with that knowledge, right? Because I've read the Word of God. Whereas if I have a supernatural gift, I'm dependent upon that supernatural gift in order to minister to others, right? You see? Um, again, that's the point he's making about a child and a mature man. The mature man goes about his day doing his thing, providing for himself, whereas the child is dependent upon the parent to take care of them, right? And so the child here is the person that needs the spiritual gift. Whereas the grown man is the person who has the knowledge and understanding and is doing it, right? And they're not tossed to and fro or dependent upon something to help them edify the church, right? Um, so that's a more excellent thing to be the mature man that can not be dependent upon a spiritual gift, but read the word of God and then do it. Um, so again, we have the complete word of God. We don't need uh, the spirit giving us right, uh, gifts in order to know his will. So that is the more excellent way, right? Charity and knowledge and understanding uh, in the Word of God is more excellent than having a spiritual gift. 
Uh, and so the application here is we need to understand that we are in Christ uh, if we want to live in liberty and freedom from religious rituals. Right, so going back to baptism, communion, things of this nature, if you understand who you are in Christ and your spiritual baptism, your spiritual communion, it gives you the freedom to live in liberty, not subject to people telling you you have to do certain things uh, if you want to be in the church. Uh, both the doctrine of our baptism and communion with Christ concerns the mystery. Um, understanding these things helps us live the Christian life. Understanding your baptism helps you to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God to serve him. Right? That's what Romans 6 teaches us. Understanding our communion together in the same blood and bread should help us to love and minister one to another. There in the context of 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 24, Paul says, Let every man seek the wealth of another and not his own. Right? Because that's that doctrine of we are one in Christ. Right? And we need to minister one to another. Um, that's how that should affect uh, your behavior. Understanding we have all spiritual blessings in Christ should remind us that we are rich in Christ and that the treasures here are temporary. Right? So what should we be following after? Spiritual things or earthly things? Right? Um, understanding that we now have all scripture uh, so that we can know what God has said and done and what he is doing today allows us to stand firm in doctrine and gives us the knowledge and understanding we need to serve God, this is more excellent than uh, having a spiritual gift. Uh, and then walking by faith and in the Spirit can be done by reading and rightly dividing the Word of God and allowing it to effectually work in you so that you can be a workman that will not be ashamed. So with that said, are there any thoughts or questions?